if you go into it with the mentality of, I want a knowledge base, but I want one person writing it, I think it's the wrong approach. Welcome to another episode of the Startup Smoothie Podcast, where we blend together the best customer experience and operations strategies for startups. Our guest today is Alexandria Schrader, the CX lead at Slate and a knowledge management expert with more than a decade of experience in software as a service tech support. Alexandria will share her expertise on the significance of internal and external knowledge bases and how her team at Slate leverages knowledge management to elevate the customer experience. Be sure to stick around for an entertaining fact or fiction segment where we challenge Alexandria's knowledge on knowledge management. Overall, we had a lot of fun recording this episode. Customer is always right. It is a cutting-edge, high-tech firm out of the Midwest. Explain business ethics and how they are applied today. Ooh, that's a rough business to be in right now. <laughs> Cousin business is a boom. New technology permits us to do very exciting things. All right, Alexandria, let's just dive right in because we got a lot to cover. But let's start with the adjective customer-centric because every company thinks they're customer-centric. Off the top of your head, what are the red flags that indicate to you that an organization still has work to do before they can make that claim of being customer-centric? For sure. I mean, for me, there are a few tells. When you start talking to leadership and they're talking about support as a cost center, if it's just like ruthlessly cut the department, make do with the least possible resources you can have. I think that's definitely putting you more toward a, not a customer centric approach. Meanwhile, if the product team heavily weighs and values the insights of your customers and uses them to inform how the product is built and where you go, like that's a different thing right it feels good yeah. when you're actively using that feedback so from a support perspective it's like how involved am i in elevating the customer voice in the company how seriously are requests taken when i bring them for the customer how empowered do i personally feel to be the champion for our customers and for our users and there's a lot of companies where you'll join and you'll feel immediately like a dismissive vibe with it and for me just if the first time you bring user feedback, the response is like, yeah, no, that's not what we're working on, then your answer should probably be, hmm, did I pick the right company? Oh, I love that. How involved am I in elevating the customer voice? Completely resonate with that sentiment. I honestly think seeing support as a cost center can be a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you treat customer support like a cost center, they're going to stay a cost center, right? If you're cutting corners, not investing in your team, or you're stressing efficiency over quality, you're destined to continue burning money. Do you think it's up to support leaders to demonstrate the impact CX has on revenues for things like customer retention? That's a harder one because it's a metric. You know, retention is usually in the domain of success. So it, it depends how your org is structured. I'm coming from 10 years in software as a service tech support. I'm coming from Eventbrite, Big Cartel, and now Slight. So all startups, but completely different growth levels, trajectories, completely different parts in the product market fit. I do feel it helps to tie support to more value metrics, but it's just what can you claim and what can't you? We can look at our data and see that, okay, 70% roughly of paying users used the support while they were still in freemium. We know people talk to the support while they were in a free team. So it's a no-brainer for me when I'm told, well, you know, let's try some experiments. Why don't we cut support for free teams? My immediate thing with, with feedback like that, I'm like, well, actually... 
I do have (laughs) these metrics to show that we incentivize people to upgrade because we're helping teach people how to use the software. We're helping to identify the experience points that are causing friction. So while I wouldn't say that I can directly tie my work to churn, you just want to make sure the company understands that there is a cultural value to support you know, you're the face of the company, you're out there with the users. And there are other components to it as well. Like the education, you can actually, as you go, start tracking over time, the hits you're getting on your help center content, the number of watches on YouTube videos, the attendees for your webinar, you can start using these other stats and putting it in terms that maybe folks with a more marketing mindset would understand. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone responds to growth. So if you see that the processes are like growing their readership, It's definitely a good way to prove your case. I think a lot of times a brand's customer perception is associated with marketing. And the reality is customer support is also your brand. And yeah, it's important. So part of our topic for today is knowledge management. Personally, when I think of knowledge bases, I typically associate them with the external facing resources that are intended for customer use. That might be my own subjective viewpoint and not necessarily a widely shared perspective. But organizations should have internal and external knowledge bases. So I'd like for us to start with talking about the importance of internal knowledge bases. For me, I think of internal knowledge bases as tribal records. We all have these distinct tribes within an organization and internal knowledge bases help us by addressing the issues of distributed knowledge. Things like, what does this team know? Where is this team? What does this team do? And so as a follow-up question, how do you think companies can encourage their employees to contribute and utilize internal knowledge bases effectively? So if you look at traditional knowledge bases, they're usually structured around having a few key writers and then everybody else just reads the content. A lot of knowledge-based softwares are not collaborative in nature. So if you're wanting to keep your team aligned on the knowledge that's being disseminated to your users, your customers, you want everybody in the company to contribute. If you go into it with the mentality of, I want a knowledge base, but I want one person writing it, I think it's the wrong approach because these are living documents. You need to update your processes as they happen. You need to update guides about your own product as it evolves. Most of us in startup land anyway, we ship fast. So the product can change night and day in literally a night and day. You know, our latest launch, it was like three weeks from tech demo to in production. You see it a lot with being in productivity and in the knowledge management space. You get the reaction, you know, in a pre-sales conversation, people are asking, okay, well, how much do I pay for only readers? And there's a concept in a lot of software as a service, like, okay, readers should be free. Readers should cost less because They're not contributing. And when people come to me saying, hey, I have a team of 100, but we only want the few knowledge writers to have actual permissions access to the docs. You know, if you get big enough, it's good to have a knowledge manager, but information will continuously get stale unless everybody is contributing. So internal or external, sure, it's great to have a point person, but if you don't empower everybody in your company to 
develop that knowledge, to write the policies, to keep the docs fresh, it's just not going to happen. And doubly so as you scale in the kind of stage of growth we're at. We're finally finding product market fit. We're at a really exciting point in the product journey, but it, it just means that we have to work twice as hard. We have to be vigilant to keep all the documentation reflecting the latest features, the latest policies. And if you go into that with the perspective, I only want one person maintaining everything, it's not going to be as good. And you can have an, a knowledge manager, but at that point, their job is also to wrangle other people. You shouldn't be expected to be a master of all the knowledge. It's just it's an impossible standard, I think. You have to bring in the knowledge of different departments to make it work for your support team to use that information effectively. Oh, no doubt. I completely agree. It should be a team effort. How do you guys apply knowledge management to enhance the customer experience at Slight? For Slight in particular, we build knowledge software. So we're working in our product, working from our product uh, to support our product. It was a little weird at first when I first joined as the first support hire because we had a rule up to that point, don't document the product in the product. Hmm. I guess it was too meta. It was too meta. But I mean, that's clearly not the case now. Now we definitely document everything to an extent. We have an all hands support framework. Everybody in the company up to the CEO has traditionally done support shifts every week. Wow. But that's, that's changing. Over time, I'm reducing dependence on that framework. More senior people are graduating out of the support. Of course, they're still present in the Slack channel and in the docs to keep the user experience touching every area of the product. Yeah, when you said the CEO <laughs> answers support tickets, I was like, the ones they're CC'd on? What <laughs> are we talking about? That's pretty unconventional, but very cool. For sure. So he, I mean, he doesn't have a standing shift anymore, I would say. At some point, you know, of course, he has just so many responsibilities to that. Of course. The, the, the thing is, like, if needs arise, if we have a sudden influx, like a, a really unexpectedly large volume, like on a, a launch or something, he's still the first person opening intercom and like popping in and answering questions. And he'll take mm -hmm. some of the more technical ones that maybe, you know, if I took it or if one of our newer hires took it, we would be digging for that answer for a little while. Yeah. It sounds like to me, though, regardless of who's answering the tickets, that there is an all hands on deck type framework and that you guys culturally within slight value customer support. So that's I mean, that's pretty cool. If everybody's willing to help out and sees the value in helping, that's amazing. Whatever comes out of these gates, we've got a better chance of survival if we work together. All right, so we have a fun segment called Factor Fiction where you'll be provided some statements and you have the opportunity to guess whether or not you believe they are Factor Fiction. Let's do it. <laughs> yeah, this isn't meant to test your expertise as a professional in the knowledge-based field. It's just supposed to be a fun segment. So hopefully it is. All right, first one. Factor Fiction. Cancellation instructions are the most popular self-service search queries for help centers. Hmm, that's a good question. I, it, it, for me, this really depends on your product. If you gatekeep account closure, then people are going to search for it. At Slate, you can just close it. You can look in the yeah. settings and terminate your account and it's, you know, full GDPR practice. So I, I would say we don't find that to be true in our product. So I'm going to say depending on your business, maybe B2C it's different, but B2B, I don't, I don't think that's true. So you're going with false. I'm going with false. You're right. The actual most common reason people search help desks is for password resets. So for anyone listening who doesn't currently have a Help Center article on how to reset your password, you might want to add that one in. 
All right, let's move on to the next one. Fact or fiction. In the early days of computing, knowledge bases were often used to store information about people's dreams. Ah, I feel like early computers were just used for math. I don't know. Let's see, but... Why uh, that's complicated. I mean, sleep studies must have had some kind of computing element. It sounds cool, but I'm going to call fiction on that one. You're doing great. You're two for two so far. Awesome. <laughs> Fact or fiction. The average response time for a customer service email is around 12 hours. Huh. That's... I mean, that's believable, right? I've been in teams where it was a 24-hour first response time goal for email. Now, though, like with intercom and with all of the in-app messaging, like our current goal is like 30 minutes. Uh, but different industries have different needs. So like a techier product might default to email first. This whole could be right. That could be, it, it feels good to me. I'm going to say true. You're incredible. Amazing. Okay. Um, Fact or fiction. 91% of organizations utilize help centers. So I think our data at Slight um, from last year, just in, in terms of the funnel, right? The, the self-help funnel. Sure. We had like 100,000 people looking at help articles. We have a, a relatively low volume. I think Intercom was estimating it's like 1% of users who actually reached us after looking at our help center content. Now, I, I'm sure there's, there's some loss in that data funnel. But 91% seems right. I, if you don't document your product, and it's just, it's just so much manual work to not have any help center. So I'm, I'm going to say facts. Uh, oh, my goodness. Amazing. Um, yeah, that is true. Apparently, that is true according to a research done by Zendesk. So, yeah. Beautiful. All right, four for four. Ooh. And there's three left. So, <laughs> Fact or fiction. The first help desk was established in the early 1980s by IBM to assist its employees with technical issues. I feel like early IBMs were the size of a house and needed quite a bit of documentation. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say true on that. That has to be true. I mean, I don't even know what to say. I feel like people are going to think I gave you the answers beforehand or something. I mean, you were just killing it. Oh, my goodness. Huh. Um. Nice. I feel like there's a lot of pressure, though, for you to get these five too. <laughs> but don't worry, I, I can still I can still blow out the average, uh, the opposite direction. So <laughs> keep them coming. No, this is incredible. Fact or fiction? The average cost of a support phone call is eight dollars. Mm, I haven't offered phone support in my last two companies. That's that's gonna be harder for me. Let's see. I mean, the average handle time back in the day, I was handling what like six per hour in my first support job. Yeah, I was probably handling five or six conversations an hour. I think I was paid 15 or 18 an hour, depending depending as I like leveled up at the company. So I, I feel like it's lower. I And so many people use BPOs and like outsource their support. I'm going to say less than $8. So you're going false. I'm going false, but tentative. Okay, so you're half right. We're going to give you credit for it because the game is fact or fiction and you did get the answer right. But according to a study by the Help Desk Institute, average cost is actually $22. Wow. I, I'm shocked. Um, yeah, that one actually blew my mind. Um, I don't know. We might have to look into that. Cut to that study, guys. 
A study carried out by the Help Desk Institute in 2018 discovered, on average, customer support phone calls lasted 10 minutes and incurred a cost of $22. This monetary figure encompassed the average wages of customer support representatives, the cost of phone lines and equipment, as well as the general expenses associated with running a call center. The Institute noted that a considerable percentage of calls necessitated follow-up action, such as sending an email or contacting the customer at a later time. These follow-up actions added to the cost of each average call, as they required extra resources to address customer issues. Well, there you have it, I guess. $22. Who would have known? Fact or fiction? The success of a knowledge base depends on the quality of its search functionality. 100%. Honestly, I can believe 100% it's correct. If you can't find the article, it doesn't matter how great it is. So I'm going true. Fact. Uh, yes, you got them all. <laughs> Good job. I thought that one was a little tricky, but uh, yeah, that's true. According to a study done by HDI, the success of your knowledge base depends on the quality of your search functionality and the queries available to it. I just personally, me, I never use the search feature. I always look at the categories, but perhaps that's because the search functionality isn't that great for most knowledge bases. It gives me too many answers and not the one I'm looking for. Um, but I am pretty tech savvy, so I rarely have to use the self-service options. So when I do, I'm looking for something quite specific so maybe uh i was just a little biased in that one thinking it was hard but um i mean you're also an expert in knowledge-based management so of course you're gonna get that this is incredible because again this wasn't really meant to test your expertise but obviously it was a great showcase of it oh well done see here everyone this great has done it <laughs> splendid okay Anyways, a little backstory on the Startup Smoothie podcast. We collaborate with each guest to decide on a topic for their episode. Typically, we use a Google Doc to share ideas, but in this case, Alexandria sent me a link to Slight, which allowed me to try their platform, which was very nice. I thought it was really cool of you to introduce me to Slight in that way, but let me know. What's new at Slight? What are you excited about? Sure. Well, we just pushed our AI assistant feature called Ask. So I think, you know, at the time, the thinking wasn't, let's make this like the most incredible tool for support people. But I'm in the background going, dudes, this is the most incredible tool for support <laughs> people. I'm just, I'm like so stoked. There's an extent to which you'll still have to like train it. It's not, it's not perfect. You have to have good knowledge in place. You have to take care of getting everyone in the team involved to create good knowledge and maintain it. But if you have good articles in place, it's going to get you the right answer. And for me, that's super exciting. I mean, I'm not. I'm not in favor of like full bots for support because then by the time you get an actual person, I find people are so frustrated. It undoes the positive will you generate. People don't want to have to dig and alternately, most people don't want to have to talk to support at all. So ideally, the self-serve is the first pass, but it's not forced on your customers. Yeah. Absolutely. It goes back to what we were just talking about. For me, I don't use the search functionality for most knowledge bases because I don't want to have to dig in that type of way. I'd rather just look at the categories. But as we learned, the ideal situation for most people is to use a search functionality. So that's exciting because... Uh, I think ideally I would like to use the search feature. I've just naturally trained myself not to like it. And so this AI ask 
is definitely something that as a consumer, I would find favorable. For me, it's the right balance. If people don't want to ask support for help, that's a great feature. But then for every more complex issue, everything that doesn't have an easy solution, that's what you want, right? You want to empower the humans in your support team to answer real human questions, to be consultants, to advise, to be people. You don't want to just have your support reps all constantly throwing the same macro. Like let the help desk handle the macros and let your people have real conversations. Yep. I love that comparison. Let your support people be consultants of the product. That's that's amazing. Great, great comparison there. So transitioning here a bit, but I recently read an article by a Mel at Slight, and she wrote about your adoption at Slight with replacing weekly all hands with written weekly updates. And I found that to be a little controversial, but interesting. And I was wondering if you could just elaborate on that and talk about how that's working out for you and your team. For sure, yeah. A lot of teams are less social, I think, than our customer team at Slight. So we were the last holdout still doing the weekly meeting face-to-face in a Zoom. And so we're, we're trying it now and we're actually doing pretty well with it. We're using the same template we've always used where everybody brings, you know, their weekly goals. Everybody brings any blockers, any pain points, any announcements. We have the team celebration in the doc. Uh, we can still have the human bonding and we can hop in a call if anything needs clarification or anything needs more information, but really just kind of testing the waters because, you know, everyone else in the company is really a lot more async than us. It's by virtue of having those first response times and having a lot more collaborative of an approach than some other departments. We're constantly checking in with dev about a bug we put in triage or talking to marketing about an outgoing campaign that we have for increasing the use of a new feature. We're always working pretty collaboratively. So so yeah, I mean, I get why it's controversial. Yeah, I think I'm just one of those people that loves to see faces. Maybe controversial was the wrong word. No one knows what it means, but it's provocative. Just the immediate thought of the headline of that article, I was like, oh no, that is not something I would <laughs> like. But as long as you have other ways of collaborating and still engaging with each other, then it should be all right. But that was just my immediate thought when I saw that headline. I thought it was very interesting and good to hear that it's like working out for you. Because maybe the, the fact of the matter is, yes, I want to sit and see my coworkers' faces, but maybe <laughs> I want to see them in a different setting as opposed to KPIs, updates, these like collaborative kind of work-related things, which are better served in a newsletter type style. So we're still keeping some FaceTime. We're, we're just using it to catch up more socially, to bond more. So it's that kind of thing. Yeah. No, I mean, it just sounds like you guys experiment a lot, which I think is pretty cool. Trying out things, whether or not they're controversial, is always good. It's always good to experiment within an organization. But uh, what kind of other experiments are you guys running over at Slight? At Slate, we do experiment. Right now, I have an outbound campaign that's a customer education campaign. It's segmented for free teams under 11 members, only full members, no guests. So I have that educational team going out for three quick tips 
to getting the most out of Slate. So this is technically like, you know, support by marketing initiative where we're also running some onboarding webinars with success and with marketing. We have a lot of room to experiment. Like previously, our sales team ran a very brief trial running mandatory demos at sign up where everybody who signed up for Slate had to do a live synchronous demo with us to continue. Oh, wow. So as you might expect, conversion was quite a bit up. But it, of course, took a lot of time and we had a lot fewer signups because when people see they have to book a slot, they're like, oh, I'm not. We're, fi- we're going to a competitor. This is- <laughs> um, so it, it ended up like it, it definitely like per team impact was greater. We saw a lot more people converting. But, you know, these are just things we have, I think, a blog about it, too. We, we've gotten some interesting results from these trials. It's good that we're not set to a specific script. We don't have to only go with like approved A-B tested initiatives. We can definitely try things. But I, I'm one of the ones most guilty of like holding on like, well, well, maybe we tried a different way. Maybe we try it that way. Like I definitely get attached to, to some ideas when they work. So that right. even as they stop working as well, I have to like pull myself back. Like, oh no, there's something better we could be trying. This is not the be all end all for, for whatever the campaign is at the time. And again, we're just in a growth phase. So that comes with the territory. Yeah, no, I mean, I've worked in organizations where I've had the flexibility to test things out. And it's just an incredible feeling, especially working in CX, to get to experiment, but also to be trusted to experiment. But your last point there just kind of reminded me of something that's super off topic, but I think about often. So essentially, in Superman Returns, the director, Brian Singer, had spent Something around $10 million on this mesmerizing portrayal of Superman's homeworld. And he loved it. And he had spent all this money investing in it, essentially. And everybody else was like, we have to cut this scene. It doesn't work. It doesn't fit into the film well. And for him, he was just so invested in it and had spent so much time and money into creating it. It ended up taking several producers and executives telling him he had to cut it to eventually get rid of it. And sometimes I just think back to that because I always try to be super self-aware of when something's not working and when maybe I'm too invested in something. And just there's so many instances in the workplace where you truly love a concept or an idea and you invest so much time and energy in it. And then it ends up just not converting well for users or just isn't a good fit for the film. And um, it's good to know when you need to cut something, no matter how much you love it. That was a very sad story. And there's a moral to it. Oh, yes, a very good moral. Anyways, um, let's get back on topic. What kind of things, Alexandria, do you pay attention to within your team, within CX as a whole, across the industry? What kind of trends are you tracking? Totally. So I actually, I like to bring stats with every support retro at the end of each year, just to keep, you know, the rest of the company kind of up to speed with what we're working on and what we're working toward. Mm-hmm. So I have some evergreen market takeaways. <laughs> One, people do not want to talk to support if they can help it. It's an inefficiency. It is a waste of their time. So there was a 2018 poll. 71% of consumers polled said they wanted to solve their customer service issues on their own. And that was up from 64% the previous year in 2017. That's on Help Scout. Nice. Their blog is killing it. 
Ah, oh, it's help. killing it. It's okay. <laughs> uh, next, most people will leave your platform silently rather than go through the trouble of complaining. 26. 100%. I'm sorry. I'm going to start over on that. But 100% as a consumer, I agree. <laughs> it's yes. true. Immediately, too, I'm unsubscribing from your marketing emails. Like, as soon as I get that first one, I'm unsubscribing <laughs> from the marketing emails. I don't want to see you ever again. But anyways, continue with the rest of that fact. Nice. So yeah, most people will leave your platform silently rather than complain. And this is maybe stronger in business to consumer rather than business to business. But yeah, for every 26 unhappy customers, only one statistically is going to contact you. 25 others will remain silently unhappy. And it's fewer than 4% of the ones who are unhappy who ever contact you at all for any reason. Most of the rest are going to silently churn. They're going to leave your platform. You're never I don't know why. I mean, even if you ask in the churn, what's the requirement for downgrading? You're probably, if they're forced to answer it, they're probably going to, they just want to downgrade the account. They're not going to put a lot of thought, like market or something. They're going to put like one word that's going right. to raise more questions than it answers. And so you just have to keep in mind, like you as a support professional need to thoroughly and frequently survey your users. You need to have key touch points at different points in the customer life cycle. And you need to like take pains to keep up to date on how your users are feeling. And the source for the 26 unhappy customers is a Forbes article. And then customer experience is everybody's job in software as a service. 89% of consumers are more likely to make another purchase after a positive customer service experience. This stat is coming from Salesforce, state of the connected customer. 83% of customers agree that they feel more loyal to brands that respond and resolve their complaints. And actually, like, one without the other is probably effective. This is from Koros. These are must-know customer service stats of 2022. 68% of folks surveyed said they were willing to pay more for products and services from a brand known to offer good customer service. So this one is coming from HubSpot. But these are all known successful SaaS companies. These are stats that people like to ignore. But if you have ongoing terrible site-breaking bugs and you don't listen to how frustrating these user experiences can be, you're going to lose customers, point blank. I'm leaving. That's the situation, and uh, I'm going. Where are you going? Just leaving. But where? Before we go, I, I just want to ask, because, you know, startups tend to be rapidly growing environments, and they tend to have these high turnover rates as well as the growth. But what's your perspective there on the importance of documentation and record keeping for product features and processes? How do you go about handling the challenges of managing and updating documentation over time? Uh, so with 10 years in software as a service tech support and, you know, I'm, I'm 37. I'm a lot of people in startups are like 20 now. I'm, I'm definitely feeling kind of grandma vibes. But in one of my early startups, it was such a rapid growth startup that we were seeing a turnover rate of like two out of every three support employees gone within a year. This kind of level of turnover makes so many knowledge gaps where some of the features nobody knows how they work. You have to go back to square one. Engineering, can I get the spec sheets for that feature? Hey, marketing, can I get like the early materials you were developing to announce it? Like nobody knew how some of the things work. So that is why I got so passionate about keeping good documentation. 
documenting everything. Uh, if you have a process, document it. If you have features, document them in triplicate. Document them thoroughly, get everything on paper. And and yeah, like there's challenges then to upkeep it, but it's better to have at least the paper trail of what your product's done and why. Yeah. Otherwise, like anyone that comes after you is going to be at a complete loss. You know, how do you how do you pick up like that? I, anyway, I'm, I'm definitely very keen on having documentation up to date. Yeah, no, I have always thought that like a knowledge base or help center is just someone at one point saying someone else is going to need to know this. That's true. Or it's a customer experience person saying, I, I probably shouldn't be answering this question five times a day. Right. Like, no, it's, it's all, but then getting new people to adopt a knowledge base too is a whole thing because mm. I don't know. Because then you just feel like such a jerk being like, this is in the knowledge base. I think there's a way to do it with care. You can like summarize the points in completely different words, you know, and then, and then say like yeah. full, full info here. But honestly, lately I'm of the type like, cool, let's record a quick video for them. <laughs> if this is a complicated topic, like why you should structure your knowledge base a certain way. You yep. have to keep you have to keep like clean naming nomenclature. This this goes back to the trivia, the search question. But if you don't have a good naming system, stuff is gonna get lost constantly. And then you're gonna end up with four copies of the how to file a bug doc, each one just yes. slightly out of date. Master Skywalker, there are too many of them. What are we going to do? I completely agree. This happens so frequently where I have found multiple docs on the same process and I'm just looking at the history to see which one is most recent. Um, anyways, I just want to go ahead and thank you, Alexandria, for coming on today. We learned a lot. I learned a lot, at least. I, I really just appreciate you taking the time to sit down and talk to me today. So thank you. It's been a pleasure speaking with you today, Devin, and I'm excited to appear on the Startup Smoothie. Oh, thank you. Talk soon. Hopefully you can come back too. I for sure, yeah. I'll prepare more topics. So let me give give me a year to get more life experience. <laughs> We're gonna have a good time. Always. Thanks for joining us on another episode of the Startup Smoothie Podcast. Here's the deal. Knowledge bases are only as good as you empower them to be. And if you want a knowledge base with AI powered fast and intuitive search capabilities, check out Slight. Let the bots answer the same basic questions over and over and free your team to take a more human, consultive approach to their work. You can learn more about their advanced product features, attractive templates, and one hell of a resource center at Slight.com. On next week's episode, we've got the one and only Scott Benson, a fintech compliance maven, joining us to talk shop. Scott has always strongly advocated for the collaboration between compliance and CX departments, and we will be exploring the significance of this synergy. Be sure to tune in for a valuable discussion.